We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, welcome back. This is Hampton Keithley and Bob Brandon, and we are going to wrap up our review of Evolution's Achilles Heels today. And Good. Chat. We are doing chapter eight on ethics and morality. So how are you, Bob? I'm good, Hampton. Yourself? I'm good. Good. It's nice and cold here. 38, nice. I think. Oh, yeah, that equals our... Uh, <laughs> You're high for the day? Well, actually, it's been a little bit mild, actually. It's 22 right now, which is no big deal for, for uh, end of November. That's no big deal. But yeah. uh, we had some snow last two days, so it's nice. Well, it's good to have snow for Thanksgiving. More important to have snow for Christmas. Sure is. So. Well, up here, you know, the critical issue is uh, the ski mountain being able to open. And we had some snow three weeks ago, you know, almost a month ago. Mm-hmm. And so, so that helped get the base of the mountain. And then they create snow. So the last couple of days, the mountain's already been open, of course, but having some snow the last couple of days, they should be in full swing. That's great. Yeah. Okay, well, let's see. Um, the authors, plural, for this chapter are Dr. David Catchpool, PhD in agronomy at University of New England in South Wales, and Dr. Mark Harwood. PhD in engineering at the University of Sydney. Very good. Have all, of, have all of the, I guess all of the guys haven't been from Australia, but a lot of them have. Correct. So. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, this chapter, I've, I sort of debated in my mind, you know, do I even need to read that chapter? But I found it very compelling. They did a good job of making their, case in this chapter there's so many examples yes yeah i agree i think and i think what he says in this chapter is all true and a consistent application of evolution leads to selfishness and can't explain morality um and i also think he's right when he says this this chapter is going to make atheists mad (laughs) 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 and i think the reason is because they know the real issue behind evolution is morality and ethics uh, which is just another word for the sin problem right yeah yes but even stating you know the ethics issue the way we did i think minimizes the significance of it in what way well, it doesn't just lead to immoral. It leads to murder, right? If you, if you feel you are more evolved than someone else, then what's wrong with killing them? Well, that was you- one of, yeah, that's at the end of the chapter. One of the motivations for the guy in Finland when he did the mass shooting was that. Sure. Same with Jeffrey Dahmer. He's in here as an example. Mm-hmm. And that not just, oh, here's a moral monster. So these are when you hear them quoted, you know, what was in their mind that led to their crimes? It's exactly evolution. Right. They right. stated as such. Right. Well, 
as I thought about this, um, you know, the morality and the sin problem, um, I think they don't want to admit they have one. And that's the whole reason that they are evolutionists is to do away with God. And, but I don't, and I don't know that he made this clear, but, and it wasn't his point, but that's not to say you can't be good without God. Okay. Sure. Like you don't have to become Hitler. You know, there are plenty of good atheists, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and if you read that book, Good Without God by uh, Greg Epstein, I think he's a Harvard Humanities chaplain or something like that. Uh, he quite eloquently, eloquently writes about how humanists can be good. And he has a whole section called, if we're nothing but selfish genes, why be good? And he gives reasons like people need community, peer pressure, <laughs> reciprocity. Yeah. If you go down the list of reasons, they are almost all self-centered or selfish, which I found ironic. Sure. Because, you know, I wonder well, if you noticed that his reasons were selfish. Well, it's also a gross misunderstanding of the term good. Yes, yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, you, you can know. always the, find, yeah, you can compare yourself to somebody else. And, yeah. Imagine Jesus, you know, somebody says to him one day, recorded in the Gospels, good teacher. And he stops the guy and says, there's only one who's good. Right. So we, we can do away with the whole humanist manifesto, right, of being good. It's, right. Especially when Jesus details Right. Some of the insight into that stuff. If you, you know, if you even looked at this woman this way or if you even thought this about that guy, I mean, you know, we got to really define good, not just on the surface. But yeah. So let's get some stuff out of the way at the beginning, <clears throat> because they for a few pages, they belabor the point you know, that uh, how critical one's worldview is. Well, we do that all the time Yes, yes. on this podcast. Well, I thought it was interesting. There was one sentence. A worldview is generally not taught explicitly, but it, it but is unconsciously caught from the prevailing culture. And I had to think about the social imaginary. <laughs> yeah, well, so, so great minds think alike, Hampton. So I had that written down in the margin of all my pages. He's talking about the social imaginary. <laughs> um, and if you yeah. have to go back. People have to go back and listen to the book review on Truman by Truman. Yeah, that's right. So um, most people, you know, everyone has a worldview, but very few people actually think their worldview through. So some helpful questions off the get-go a lot of times worldview is introduced with you know some basic questions like this where did we come from what went wrong how do we fix it however you answer those questions reveals clearly your worldview so the creationists where do we come from god and we're his image what went wrong genesis 3 Mankind fell, right? Sin entered the world. How do we fix it? The sacrificial death of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's the creationist model. The evolutionist model. How do we get here? Complete accident. Just random chance. Uh, what went wrong? Nothing, really. Yeah. We're, just, we're, we're just not ev evolved enough yet. Right. How, how do we fix it? Kill off the less evolved. Now, who, that's for real. That's what's underneath these models. Those ideas will surface somewhere mm -hmm. in a person's life, whoever holds those. Yeah, I, I just saw a quote the other day. It says, the death of one person is tragic. The death of millions is just a statistic. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, they they your your quote was very good. That summarizes uh, that section. So we we can move forward okay. from there. I think, but you know, a good place to start because I don't I don't want to sound like I'm just uh, putting words 
in some of these guys' mouths. I want to I want to quote them. So directly from them, this is how they think about this stuff. Here's William B. Provine. This is page 237, Hampton. So he's a professor at Cornell at my older brother's college. So here's a quote. Let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. There are no gods no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There's no life after death. When I die, I'm absolutely certain that I'm going to be dead. That's the end for me. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning to life, no free will for humans either. Now, was that clear? That's pretty clear. That's where they're coming from. There's no God. When you die, you don't exist anymore. There is no purpose for life. There is no basis for ethics. Hmm. I don't think I'll be hanging out with William Provine very much. Right. <laughs> but But there you go. That's just to point out. I'm not making these things up. This is where they're coming from. And, it, you know, one thing I actually respect about that, at least he's being honest to that extent. Yeah, and I, I think that was a, a idea that I had was that your average guy on the street has not really thought through all of the implications of evolution, mm-hmm. you know, you know, philosophically, morally, ethically, you know, they're still operating based on a God-given conscience, mm-hmm. and um, these guys have thought it through, and they all recognize the truth of where it leads to nihilism and hopelessness, and that was to me that probably one of the most powerful parts of this chapter were all the quotes from people like Dawkins. Yep. Yep. Just saying there is no hope. Just get over it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. anyway. Yep. So here's another example who, of course, you know, what, what often comes up in any discussion of morals or ethics is world war two, right? That what the Nazis did. So here's an interesting Um, insight from that so page 238 at the Nuremberg trials in which former Nazi leaders were tried for war crimes a dispute arose as to which laws should be used to try the accused the Nazi laws had redefined personhood to include Jews and other undesirable to exclude Jews and other undesirables, so the leaders argued that they had not committed mass murder, but were acting within the law of their land. They protested that the court had no jurisdiction over them. However, Robert H. Jackson, chief counsel for the United States, argued that there was a law above the law that stood in judgment of all men in all countries and societies. But you could see where where the defense attorney is coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? It, well, who makes these rules about who can kill who? Once you've eliminated God, we're allowed to make our own rules. And we declare Jews non-persons and other undesirables. Well, that's nice of you, right? You're so you're God now. You're the one who decides who's a person and who isn't. And this is, so we look at that as an isolated thing, right? Oh, that was the Nazis way back there almost 100 years ago. Well, didn't we just have a a um, Supreme Court nominee was asked about a fetus? What is a person? And refused to define that. Mm-hmm. as if and presented her answer as if it was wisdom 
What a fool. Let's just decide she's not a person. Do away with her. I mean, wow. People need to think through this stuff. Yeah, I think a lot of people like the the social contract theory of morality. If we can all agree that homosexuality is okay, then it's okay. Mm-hmm. And I think even, you know, Christians think those kinds of thoughts. I agree. I agree. And, and and so when you point out these types of the logical end, logical conclusion um, with the, the Nazis, people go, oh, if you have to bring up the Nazis, you've lost the argument. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I don't think that's true. I think no, that's that's, that's a good observation, Hampton. I, I agree with you. People sort adhere <laughs> to the social contract thinking, and part of that, their reasoning is if there's no harm, in you know, if another person's not being harmed, then who cares? Who cares what two guys are yeah, doing? I would say that's probably the reigning idea of morality. As, as long as you don't hurt somebody else. Correct. So let's think of the biblical model. Adam and Eve harm anybody when they ate that fruit? The whole world. The whole world. <laughs> Sin is not an isolated. You, you can't sequester it to a bedroom. It seeps throughout the human race. You can't, that's just so naive. You know, there's no harm involved. Yes, there is. And there's not just harm. There's devastation. Right. So, well, I want to go back to, we kind of skipped around, but a couple sections that stood out in my mind was, uh, he had one is, is God a moral monster? Yeah. And people often come up with the objection that, since God told the Israelites to go kill the Canaanites, he's cruel and immoral himself, and they don't want to worship a God like that. Yeah. And uh, that is perhaps the most, uh, that's the objection I've heard the most from people. Sure. And so he recommends uh, Paul Copan's book, Is God a Moral Monster? Mm-hmm. And he summarized some of the main points. And I highly recommend that book. I've read it. I recommended it. I've recommended it to people and I've actually given it away to as gifts to people who have, who asked me that question or made that, you know, observation. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually ran into Paul Copan in the elevator at uh, ETS at San Diego a couple of years ago. Oh. And uh, so I was like, Oh, I love your book and I have given it away. And he's like, Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, nice. So, nice. Um, one of the points that he makes in here is that, you know, and and Paul Copan makes is that, you know, God's not just love. He's also just the Canaanites were into child sacrifice and all sorts of sexual promiscuity, et cetera. They were horrible. They were almost as horrible as Americans. <laughs> and, you know, God gave them 430 years to repent before he judged them. And I can't help but think that that the same thing's about to happen to us. I don't, you know, I don't want to be a prophet of woe and lamentation, but we just, we passed our 400 year anniversary 15 years ago. How long is God going to wait? Well, so here's, here's some tangents on that because I I just want to speak, of course, I mean, I'm always speaking this way. I think, so to point this out is almost redundant, but on a personal level, how that stuff strikes me, you know, that God is a moral monster. I've, I rarely delve into that subject. I'm, I'm glad you've read Copan. I don't think I would read that book, not because it isn't good, but there's something in my gut that I get really angry about that stuff. And then I start to think of examples. So let me just, you know, trace my own thoughts. So just briefly, here's a one that doesn't raise my ire, but helps set the table. If I'm going uh, 60 miles an hour 
in my car in a 35 mile an hour zone. Is the cop breaking the law to go 70 to chase me down? No. No. Is God a moral monster for wiping out the Canaanites who were killing their children? See, you see where I'm headed? Like, how about you have a daughter and your daughter gets raped and murdered by somebody? Are you a moral monster for punishing that guy? No, in matter of fact, in recent times, there are several instances of fathers and brothers that did that and the juries let them go. Let them go. See, I would say the jury jury is the moral monster. Yes, yes, yes. So I don't like society is so bad. You know, I, I hate it when people even bring that stuff up. And I, I and I'm certain I do think the author made this point. He didn't say it like this, but eventually he kind of hinted at this. Those are people that, you know, people who bring that accusation against the Lord are people who've never read the Bible. Yeah. They're they're just looking for self-defense because you don't read the Bible and close the book and have any thoughts that God is a moral monster. Any. You have thoughts that I'm in trouble. <laughs> right? I've I've crossed a righteous standard and I'm in need of a savior. Well, you should have that con- con- come to that conclusion when you read the Bible, but <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, he 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 ends that section and says that the evolutionist is not really capable or permitted to ask or make that complaint about God being a moral monster because he is not capable of reason and logic if he's just the product of chance. Evolution. Yeah, that's and right. So, um, you know, that offends. That's going to offend your evolutionist when you tell him, I'm sorry, but you don't have the right to ask that question if you're an evolutionist because yeah. they do have logic and reason because God gave it to them. <laughs> so. there, there you go. Yeah. Um, nihilism and evolution was another section. Um, he quotes Richard Dawkins saying the universe we observe has no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. And we dance to its music. Yeah. Think of that uh, phrase in there, Hampton. There is no evil. Man. That just scares me to death that there's people who think like that. There is no evil. So if I, you know, was talking to Richard Dawkins and he said that and I pulled out a gun, I said, Richard, I'm going to blow your brains out, but you, you cannot call that evil because you don't think there is such a thing as evil, you know, and watch his eyes widen and then pull the trigger. Yeah. So I guess, you know, what goes unstated, at least in in this chapter, is um, I think people forget that God made us free moral agents. He'll allow us to reject him. And so someone like Richard Dawkins is making a choice with his eyes wide open. He's not innocent. He's deciding these things. Mm -hmm. He's not observing them. He's deciding them. And, you know, ultimately, the way I read the scriptures, God honors that choice. Yeah. It's so sobering. He pointed out that these people are nihilists, but they don't live consistently with their nihilistic belief system. They care about things like climate change, promoting evolution in science class, you know, 
if evolution is about having more babies than the next person, then why care about the future? You just care about reproducing, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. and so I thought it was funny, but related to that, he, the author pointed out that um, if religion is just has just evolved, because that's what they say that a religion evolved as part of human society, and the theists have more children than the atheists and evolutionists, then why do evolutionists fight against believing in God so much? Because that's yep. they're going to you know out reproduce the atheists. Right. So it's there's no rational reason not ultimately to care and be against religion. Correct. Here's here's another quote, you know, right under the Dawkins one. This is another evolutionist. Her name is Susan Blackmore, mm-hmm. an evolutionary psychologist. Dr. Susan Blackmore affirmed, in the end, nothing matters. If you really think about evolution. Yeah, okay, let's do that. And why we human beings are here, you have to come to the conclusion that we are here for absolutely no reason at all. Well, that's encouraging. Right? Then, Susan, why don't you end it now? Well, that's a thing he pointed out, that there's been a, a sharp rise in teen suicides because they're all being told that this very thing yeah, they're thinking it through. So say yeah. Susan's 40 years old. Susan, who cares if you're 80? If you make it to 80, Susan, you're going to meet the same end. And when you die, that's it. There's no further existence in your belief system. So who cares? Nothing you do matters at all, according to what you just said. So end it. But you know they have this gut instinct not to, right? Right. That's from God. Yeah. Another section he had was public arena and evolution. Um, He says the rejection of God is increasingly reflected in the liberalization of the laws of Western nations. The evolutionary paradigm erodes the essential value of human life since we are all merely the result of a cosmic accident. So the ever burgeoning laws legalizing abortion, euthanasia, prostitution, I'll add pedophilia now, um, all progressively devalue humanity. However, Christianity declares the sanctity of life grounded on the revelation that God made man in his image. You know, we covered that problem in our, politics friday we did did. our system of government was designed for a moral population and as the immorality is increasing every day um, our system of government is not working and the people in power are above the law and all that and there was one other one thing i found really interesting he said judge henry blackman accepted haeckel's embryos in roe versus wade and so declared the fetus a non-citizen and unleashed a wave of abortions throughout the western world for our uh, audience the haeckel was a german guy i think in the 18 late 1860s yep he made up a a chart showing the the embryos and how they went through the stages of going from like a tadpole to a fish to a or a frog or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think the phrase was ontology recapitulates Re- phylogeny. Phylogeny, there you go. And so um he was I mean it was early 70s, mid 70s when they discovered that he just made all that up and lied. And I think they kicked him out of the science club, took away his credentials. And so that was a hundred years before the Roe versus Wade trial. And the fact that they would repeat that lie at front of the Supreme Court. And, you know, I remember in my high school biology book, seeing that same chart, they were sure promoting that lie in the seventies to me. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, I guess the defense attorneys for 
whatever weighed. <laughs> so yeah. um, didn't know that that was not true. And Right. I guess not. I thought you that know, was just interesting. Appalling. Yeah. And think of, you know, what strikes me as well is the language when they say, you know, a fetus, you know, non-citizen, very close to the term non-person. And I'm sure actually they do use that term right. in other contexts. Not, and then you go back to the Nuremberg trials mm -hmm. and the Nazis defended themselves by saying Jews and other undesirables are non-persons. The exact same reasoning. Right. Yeah. They hit and the, killed, um, killed whatever, six million plus, right? How many have we killed through yeah. abortion? Well, that's why I say we're worse than the uh, Canaanites. Yeah. I agree. Well, he did have a whole list of things that uh, the logical conclusion. Um, I think the section is consequences of evolutionary belief in recent history. And he went through some historical examples. Um, the first one was in Australia and the Aborigines. I did not know. I did not know about that. So basically yeah, read, read that Hampton. Cause if you don't know it, oh, yeah, a lot of us don't know okay. it. A dark period in Australia's history ensued where Aboriginal people were murdered and their body parts sent to European museums for display pur purporting to provide evidence of an evolutionary dead end in the descent of man, a living missing link. Many have tried to distance Darwin from the human consequences of his ideas, but Darwin himself made his own beliefs clear concerning the status of Aboriginal people when he wrote, at some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. The break between man and his nearest allies will then be wider instead of as now between the Negro or Australian Aboriginal and the gorilla. In recent times... <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, the... the so the Aborigine is like in between the, yep. the gorilla and humans. In recent times, Aboriginal communities have been lobbying the Australian and British governments for the re repatriation, repatriation of their ancestors' remains so they can receive a traditional burial. Interestingly, media reports of these negotiations have been silent, presumably for political correctness reasons, on why these body parts ended up in European museums in the first place. Yeah. So believing, you know, your worldview clearly affects how you interact with the world. Yeah. And Piers Darwin saying, you know, in centuries to come, mankind will eradicate what it considers to be you know, less evolved people. Yeah. Well, they wouldn't be doing that today, would they? With a, a vaccine. They might. They might. Huh. huh. There was another one, uh, the Herero genocide in, in Namib Namibia, Africa. Mm -hmm. And German settlers occupied that land and uh, thought they were a superior race and they were beating to death the men and making sl sex slaves of the ladies. And uh, there was a uprising and they said they killed 65,000 out of 80,000 of, 80, of them. They killed 65,000. Right. And there were 15,000 starving refugees left over. Yep. It's, you know, from Haeckel, right? The, the those these were Germans mm -hmm. and their their general in charge of that slaughter, Lothar von Trotha, a ruthless man. Right. He's been reading Haeckel. Yeah. So let's wipe them out. They're less evolved than we are. There well, you go. I, I was a big fan of Edgar Rice Burroughs 
growing up. Uh huh. And I read all of his science fiction stuff and his Tarzan series. And sure, I mean, he was such a uh, evolutionist, you know, and the the black people in the you know in Africa were he kind of had the same attitude, I think, of that uh, Darwin or was talking about with the Aboriginal people, mm-hmm. just a little bit above the uh, the gorillas, and that was. That was kind of the way he portrayed that. So yep. very, uh, yeah. Look back and you're like, wow, I wasn't uh, thinking that way when I was a teenager reading those things. Yeah. You know, the next, the next guy Hampton that he points out this uh, Francis Galton, we've met him before. Do you remember where? I don't where, where we, I know it's when I read the name, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's the guy. So I read a section, you know, we were covering some economics, um, f- facts and fallacies, stuff like that. And so we had we referred to a book called The Wisdom of Crowds. And there was a county fair in England. Yeah, I knew that. Hey, that's Galton. That was Galton. <laughs> yeah, that was him. He was just blown away that the crowd got it precisely right. So, well, I mean, he he considered himself <laughs> one of the elite, right? Yes, he did. And all those bumpkins turned out to be more evolved than him. Huh. <laughs> Isn't that interesting how, you, how these guys pop up? So. Well, then um, um, he talked about World War One. Now, I had not put World War One in that category of being Darwinistic, you know, the consequences of evolution. But he says it was basically the um, the attitude of the German generals that war is inevitable, and um, you know, the the fit will survive, and the ones who die just needed to die off anyway. Mm-hmm. So they weren't concerned about killing off half their people or whatever. Yeah, that's right. I I hadn't put World War One into that perspective either. Of course, there's a great quote here concerning World War Two. Like, quote by Hitler. No, it's a well. Is it? Um, maybe it is by Hitler. All week in living. All week living. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Is it? So it's a propaganda film in 1937. One of the quotes in the propaganda film is as follows. All weak living things will inevitably perish in nature. In the last few decades, mankind has sinned frightfully against the law of natural selection. We haven't just maintained life unworthy of life. We've even allowed it to multiply the descendants of these sick people look like this person here. And he was pointing to a disfigured handicapped person. Yeah, so, back to the Galton guy. Yes, he was really big into eugenics and sterilizing people. And, mm-hmm. yeah, and there was quite a relationship between the eugenics movement between germany and america with margaret sanger who started planned parenthood and yeah with gates's dad's help yeah just keep that in mind that's a small world up there at the top (laughs) it is and they they're the elites in their thinking and they they perceive the masses as a problem so they're going to reduce that mass. They've been doing that for a while. So here's a, a quote, you know, making this connection explicit between the Nazis and evolution. This is from uh, evolutionist Sir Arthur Keith, who wrote the German Fuhrer, as I have consistently maintained, is an evolutionist. He has consciously sought to make the practice of Germany conform to the theory of evolution. Yeah, that guy uh, that wrote Good Without God tries to say that Hitler was a Christian. <laughs> yeah, not, 
Then. Well, well, it's not not that Christians can't sin. I mean, you don't get much lower than David. Oh yeah, one of the, one no, of the greatest things. one of the greatest believers murdered a guy to take his wife. Yeah, you know. So it's not just that they sin; it's that that so David's sin was against his worldview. Right. Hitler's sin was because of his worldview. Right. Yeah. So then we got Stalin, Mao Zedong. Yeah, Stalin killed 30 million, Mao Zedong about 70, Pol Pot yeah. 2 to 4 million. Yeah, of a much but higher percentage of yeah. his country. But yeah, with with no issues, right? They don't go to bed at night losing sleep. Oh my God! I I killed a million people today. Doesn't even slow them down, and all of that's because of their worldview. <laughs> so, again, what I, I guess what I wanted to highlight, you know, one one tangent to this, because often you'll hear this little canard tossed out. Oh, more wars have been fought over religion than really. Is that is that statement even remotely close to reality? No, the atheists do really well at starting wars and eliminating huge sections of the population. They do really well at that. Those last three guys are pretty good examples. Mm -hmm. So more wars have not been started and fought over religion mostly what they're referring to when they say that i think are the crusades which very few people have an understanding of what that was really all about anyway well, we're going to cover that in our next book okay there's okay. a chapter in there i think on the, the what really happened with the <laughs> yeah there we go there we go so um, then his, next so then oh, the next example some of these hit home right oh like yeah the, the columbine column, columbine yeah. Yeah. So let me just read that paragraph. Okay. Um, in 1999, 15 people died in a killing spree at Columbine High School, Colorado. Many wondered afterwards what the two teenage murderers, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, had been thinking. It was soon revealed that one of the killers was wearing a white T-shirt with the inscription, Natural Selection on the front and that killers were fascinated by Nazi beliefs, the idea of a master race and the Darwinian struggle for life. There you go. That stuff very much affects how people think about the world and what they do about it. Yeah. Right. And then the Finland guy, he's even more explicit, but same thing, right? I, I was unaware of him. Were you? Yeah, aware? I haven't. We, you know, we always think that only America has uh, mass shootings, but that's not true. Uh, yeah. I think I saw a chart that said, and it's you know adjusted for population or something, but we're like nineteenth on the list. So, mm. um, but it, again, it's just a couple pages detailing his worldview, and it's exactly like that, right? It's it's uh, evolution. Yeah, and he, I'm gonna, he says, I cannot say that I am of the same race as this miserable, arrogant, and selfish human race. No, I have evolved a step higher. Yeah, so I'm going to kill them off. They bother me. I am prepared to fight and die for my cause. I, as a natural selector, will eliminate all who I see unfit. <clears throat> so. <laughs> yeah. What's the difference between, you know, the people think, oh, that's just a deranged high school kid. No, the elites today think the exact same thing. And they're doing this on a scale that's unimaginable. So yeah. he, um, he concludes with a saying this, the author does, says, of course, this does not mean that everyone who adopts an evolutionary worldview will become a mass murderer, but with a worldview that does not include an ultimate authority, such consequences are logically consistent. Thus, by teaching evolutionary theory at schools and universities, 
Society is basically giving a student all the programming he needs to justify in his own mind, helping evolution along, i.e. removing certain individuals from the gene pool. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, so there's a footnote at the bottom of, you know, this section. So, um, the footnote is an article by Jay Bergman, and it's uh, the title is "Why the Epidemic of Fraud Exists in Science Today." And I I want to pause before I read some of that article. I've got that on my computer here. If you ask most people on the street, uh, "Who is your truth teller? Who's your ultimate authority for?" discerning what's true and what isn't the most common answer is science Mm -hmm. and i i know that because i've done that maybe the last 15 20 years just casually right not conducting a scientific experiment but just i just kind of want to know i've never had any other answer than science so christians Uh, well, I tend not to ask Christians. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm you're afraid assume. of the answer. <laughs> yeah, I'm the old guys. <laughs> but I've, I don't think I've had a different answer than that than science from unbelievers. So I wish they would all just read this article again. Why the epidemic of fraud exists in science today? It's rampant when people say you know accuse christians of well you don't trust the science (laughs) how many times have you heard me say right well good science is good bad science is bad but there's no blanket science science is rampant with fraud rampant let me read some examples if that's okay hampton so this, this is from that article why, why is uh, science rampant with fraud? <clears throat> One of the sections under here is titled Fraud Among Darwinian Researchers. The scientific method is an ideal, but it's especially difficult to use to prove certain science hypotheses, such as those involving origins science. A good example of this difficulty is the theory of evolution, which is another example of a theory highly valued by scientists, but which lies in a sense too deep to be directly proved or disproved. I I would disagree with that, but I understand what he's saying. A major issue in dealing with this problem is that no small amount of arrogance exists within the scientific community. Some scientists believe that they know best and only they have the right to ask questions. And if they don't, no one else should. One famous case of evolution fraud, that of Viennese biologist Paul Kammerer was a subject of a classic book titled The Case of the Midwife Toad. Kammerer painted nuptial pads with India ink on the feet of the toads he was studying. Yet even though his work, which supposedly supported the Lamarckian theory of evolutionism, was exposed, it was used for decades to support the particular evolution ideology (coughs) of Soviet scientists such as Trofin Lysenko. In a similar case, William Summerlin faked the results of a test in the 1970s simply by drawing black patches on his white test mice with a felt tip pen. <laughs> and, and this, I know, this goes on and on. Another, I mean, it's, and it's all footnoted. You can look up all this stuff. He's not making these cases up. Let me get to this one. Another case involving Darwinism concerns one of the world's leading evolutionary biologists, Anders Pape Moeller, who was published over 450 articles and several books, a science report. So science in italics, that's the journal science. 
wrote an article on him. Government committee has ruled that Mueller is responsible for data fabricated in connection with an article that he co-authored in 1998 and subsequently retracted. The charge has cast a shadow over the relatively tight-knit world of behavioral ecology, the study of mating and other behaviors in an animal's <laughs> natural environment. One point that's indisputable is Mueller's reputation as a towering figure in the field. Mueller's been a key proponent of the idea that traits such as long symmetrical tails and barn swallows, which attract potential mates, are a sign of beneficial genes. He's also shown that stress caused by environmental factors such as parasites can lead to the development of asymmetrical body parts. But he faked his data. They know that now. Well, what was the lady's name that did the study of family, marriage, sex, or whatever in some Polynesian island and how they had free love over there and how wonderful their society was. Mm. And then, you know, it got produced. She produced a book and it just, you know, took off and she just made it all up. It wasn't true. And, yeah. And, you know, the truth came out later. Oh, gosh. And, well, here's here's just a little bit more. This, this section is some recent cases illustrate the seriousness of the problem. Unfortunately, medicine and biology especially have been hit hard by fraud. One study found 94 cancer papers likely contained manipulated data. Two years later, many of the papers were still not retracted. This confirms the conclusion that even when scientific misconduct is proven, no reliable mechanism exists to remove bad information from the literature. Another case of medical fraud involved a cardiologist, Dr. John Darcy of Harvard University Medical School. This case involved fabricating the data that formed the basis of his more than one hundred publications over a period of about three years. All the data is fake. It's got a hundred articles out there that I'm sure are constantly referred to. And he's faking the whole thing. Then you've got, how about this? Another case involved a biology study that appeared to have overturned a widely accepted theory on cell signaling. The paper was retracted only 15 months after it was published, the retraction was, has rocked the cell biology community and, say observers, has effectively ended the career of Su Kuang Chan, one of the paper's co-authors. Gary Stroll, a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator based at Columbia University, New York, and senior author on the paper, issued the retraction on the 6th of February. In the retraction, Stroll claims that Chan, a postdoc in his lab, has admitted misreporting or faili fa failing to perform crucial experiments described in the original paper. He never did the experiment. He just <laughs> described it. Okay. Stroll discovered a problem when he repeated some of Chan's experiments. When he didn't get the same results as Chan, Stroll says that he confronted his former postdoc, who had by this time moved to Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. When confronted with this discrepancy, Chan informed me that most of the results were either not performed or gave different results than presented in the paper. So I'm supposed to trust science? Well, just in our recent two years, the hundred years of mask studies were overturned by a fraudulent mask study. Yeah. June or whatever of 2020. And then that was retracted, I believe, but everybody still quoted it as, you know, 
And the same with that uh, hydroxychloroquine study in Brazil. We talked about that. Oh, gosh. You know, where they gave people a hundred times the lethal dose and then said hydroxychloroquine kills. Poison. Yeah, can kill kill the patients. That was, you know, commissioned by Fauci. On purpose, killed those 10 people in Brazil. And for the and his goal was because all of this, let me just clarify this for I'm sure they know this by now, but all of this vaccine stuff has happened under the guise of this government regulation called the Emergency Use Act, where you don't have to go through all the testing. You can't bring a vaccine to the market in one year. And that's not because doctors are lazy and if they just worked harder, you could do it in a year. It's because you need 10 to 15 years to see, to test this stuff. Right. So the reason they got away with one year is because two years before 2019, Fauci got a law passed, the Emergency Use Act, where you didn't have to go through the testing. One of the qualifications in that act is there has to be no other effective remedy. So if hydroxychloroquine works, then you can't invoke the Emergency Use Act. So he has to have an article that shows that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work when in fact it works pretty well, right? So he commissions a study in Brazil. They take 10 patients and give them one hundred times the normal dose well and they were all old and frail to begin with so it killed them all so now he's got a study that says hydroxychloroquine doesn't work that's how that happens and i'm supposed to trust science i trust good science a lot i don't trust bad science at all yeah well and he says in here that the amount of fraud amongst evolutionary science is, is uh, pretty high. Yeah. So, Cause they know it's wrong. And so they've got a lie, right. To, to fix the data, to make it. Oh my gosh. How are we doing Hampton? Are we well, on? we covered the chapter. Okay. Well, let's do this. We ended then. on a high note. <laughs> <laughs> I get so discouraged on these subjects, you know, the so the sobriety of the sin of mankind. Wow. You know, I, I can't dwell on that too much because it'll sink my ship. Yeah, I, I'm just my head will be hanging down all day long when I can. And I'm I'm part of it. I'm part of the problem. I'm not the solution. I have the same same issues you know there happens to be i've never really confessed this to you hampton so i'm about to do it right now i love rock and roll my mom was a singer growing up and you know we grew up as unbelievers but in cleveland ohio that's the home of rock and roll Mm -hmm. there was there was no rock album that came out that my mom didn't buy so our house was just full of that she she had her own album but um so i mean that she recorded she she was a singer Mm -hmm. so anyway um smashing pumpkins is one of the groups i kind of like some of their stuff that's my confession to you okay and they have (laughs) us they get my favorite song by smashing pumpkins is disarmed and in, (laughs) in that song they say the killer in you is the killer in me. And of course, with all the right music, so it sounds cool when they say it. And ever since I first heard that, I was like, you know, this guy is way more correct than he thinks. We all have the killer in us. We all have this in nature. So for you and I, Hampton, and all our brothers and sisters throughout time, that believe God that will one day be eradicated in us. Boy, do I look forward to that. Yes. In the meantime, let's, 
review. This will be real quick, like a 60 second review. This is what we covered in this book. The chapters, there's eight of them. The first chapter was on natural selection. And it was proven that that concept cannot do the job of um, evolving things. Like we did not come from pond scum. There's no way natural selection is strong enough as a biological factor to produce what evolution claims it produced. Do you remember reading the chapter on how much change there would have to be from an ape to get right. to a human being? Right. And, and under what, right? It, it cannot do it. Proven. Can, I'm not suggesting it can't do that. It is proven it can't do that. Second chapter, genetics and DNA. <clears throat> Very similar to the natural selection chapter. It turns out that um, irreducibly complex systems of which the genome is one cannot evolve. Again, I'm not suggesting that. That is proven. Genes cannot produce the power of that natural selection needs. And by the way, they're 4D, not 2D. It's way more complex than we realize, but it, it doesn't produce new, new, well, species, depending on how you define them. Let me clarify, there is biological adaptation. No one in their right mind would argue against that, but it doesn't create higher evolved species. It helps them fit in into the there's environment. Still, there's there's still finches. There's still chick exactly chick whatever the fish is. <laughs> oh yeah, kicklets. Yeah, and then uh, chapter three: the origin of life. Evolution has no chance of explaining that. Literally, their explanation is random chance. If you want to take random chance to the bank of your worldview and live and act according to that, you go right ahead. That's the most foolish thing you could do. Evolution has no answer to how life got started. None. Chapter four, the fossil record. Not a friend of evolution. There, right. is, no, there is no fossil record. <laughs> there is no There's stuff scattered around. There's no evolutionary tree. They drew the tree. There, that does not exist in the Earth's crust. It's just bones scattered around. Okay, chapter five, the geological record. So then we get into things like dating. Like yeah, radiometric really, dating, yeah. Yes. Remember I told you the story about my friend that, that was the dentist at NASA? Yeah. I had lunch with him Friday. Oh, is that right? And uh, we were at a conference this weekend. And I told him, I said, yeah, I talked about you on my podcast last week and or the week before, whatever. And I said, I was assuming that it was a patient of yours that you called because people don't just call up NASA and, you know, ask questions mm -hmm. like you did. And he goes, yep, it was one of my patients. <laughs> so. Oh, nice. I'm glad you got to touch base with him. So, you know, the dating, the geological record, the radiometric dating, that's chapters five and six. So um, all of that stuff has been proven to be so inaccurate. And the proof is this, when tested against the known age of certain rocks, what the evolutionists use as their dating methods show variance in the millions, usually. Yeah. Right. When yeah. when volcanoes create these certain rocks, so we know they're 50, 80 years old, you know, depending on the volcano and their test comes out, you know, oh, it's three million years. Well, you're, well, you're I pretty, thought we pretty far off. <laughs> yeah, I thought we concluded that the those tests only work on rocks that we don't know the age of. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Excuse me. And then, you know, the carbon dating right doesn't work for over like if if the specimen is over 90,000 years old it shouldn't have any of the carbon in there right well well it always does 
So can't be more than nine. Carbon dating's way off. Go back and listen to those things. It'll it'll prove that stuff. And you know, the corollary to that, to those chapters is usually when the dating can be trusted, the earth comes out to be about six thousand years old. Exactly what you'd think from the book of Genesis. So next chapter was cosmology. So Big Bang kind of stuff. We covered that. Again, they have no theory of how that started. If there was once nothing, you couldn't get something from that. There has to be an uncaused creator. So that doesn't fly for evolution. Last chapter, we just covered ethics and morality tell a house of horrors tale for evolution so it's not just not correct it's in horrible error it's amazingly deceitful you shouldn't be given the time of day i agree all right champ okay well that wraps that up and i will talk to you next time thank you hampton bye-bye bye Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. <laughs>